There's um, nothing better, I think, heading into Easter when we get an opportunity to sing truth like that that says that Christ is um, resurrected and living. And uh, I'm just excited for this coming Sunday where we get to really go crazy with it and uh, celebrate all that he has done in our life. Um, we have been uh, in, let me give me one second, I'm sorry. We have been in Psalms and reading through those on the way to the cross this morning. Um, we are going to take a breather. And uh, I think this morning as we read earlier in Matthew, uh, that that is kind of our attention this morning. That as we look towards the cross, the ascension was uh, there for the Jewish people to go and, and make their way to Jerusalem. But ultimately, this morning, uh, what we celebrate on Palm Sunday is of vital importance. And so let me just kind of read that again with you. And uh, that will be kind of our meditation this morning as we head into the sermon. Uh, it says in verses 1 through 5 that he was drawing near to Jerusalem and came to Bethnage into the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples ahead. We read that. And I think the context of verse 5 is important here because it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And it says, The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from the Nazareth of Galilee. And you see that the crowd still quite couldn't get it right. Uh, yes, he was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. He was a son of God. And uh, we realized that this morning, and it's a great opportunity to reflect on that. This morning, as we head into the sermon, this is the last uh, in a series we've talked about as pastoral prayers. And uh, the fun part this morning is that whether you know it or not, what we've covered over the last couple weeks is actually pretty much the Lord's Prayer. Um, I didn't really put that out there as intentional at times, but then as it started to kind of come into my head of like what we were praying, it just kind of matched well with what the Lord's Prayer is. And so to remind us, uh, week one, we said, give us a desire to pray. And then week two, we said, keep us helplessly dependent on you. And then week three, we said, make us tough and strong, resilient in you. And then last week, we talked about helping to identify and hate sin in our life. And if you look in Matthew uh, chapter 6, uh, the Lord's Prayer reads like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so week after week, you've kind of been praying this, but maybe not realize that this is the Lord's Prayer. And so this morning, we are going to take a little bit of a detour, uh, but not really, because as he ends uh, this idea of the Lord's Prayer, he gives us a really interesting verse, uh, a verse that if you read out of context, you're kind of wondering, what in the world does he mean by this? And in context, you need to understand that Jesus is already just baffled an entire crowd of people by the things that he has just spoken and said. And so he adds another one on the end of Matthew chapter 6 and verses 14 to 15. It says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
And we understand that, right? We can understand that. But the, the crucial part is here. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And you can read that and you say, okay, that makes sense. I've heard that before. But then when you start to think about it, you're like, well, does that mean that if I don't forgive somebody, if I hold a grudge against somebody and I don't let that up and I'm not willing to forgive them, that God does not forgive my sins? And then if he does not forgive my sins, does that impact my eternity? And and, and is it true that if I have a grudge against somebody that I just can't forgive for whatever reason, that God's, you know, somehow I lose my salvation, I can't really gain it back until I forgive this person? Is there a blockage there? We don't have time to dive into the whole theological content of that, but let me just kind of say, I think, what Christ was getting at. First off, I think you need to understand that when we talk about the Lord's Prayer, this was given in the context of the Beatitudes, and in the Beatitudes, God gave several other examples of things that would block a relationship with himself. So, for instance, in 529, if you were to read there, he says this, um, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. So again, he's talking about, so if there's things that are causing you to sin, that's going to separate you and be thrown into hell. That's an issue. And then he says in 522, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, anybody been there? Anybody been angry with somebody in your family or next to you this morning on the drive-in? You don't need to confess that right now. There'll be a time for that later. But this morning he says, if you are angry with your brother, you are, um, he says, then your anger with this brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable well, again, here we go to the fires of hell. And you're like, whoa, that's kind of strong words, Jesus. I just had a bad day. What do you mean you're angry? He says it again in 544. He says this, uh, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He, he says all these kind of things that are sound so reversal and sound so counterintuitive. And then he gets into this one and he says, if you do not forgive others, then neither will you be forgiven yours. Here's the thing you need to know about this passage, and we don't have time to dive into it. It's just more of a stepping stone into where we're going this morning. But here's what I think you need to know, and that is this, that this is not proof of salvation. This is not, if, if, if you have got this kind of idea that if I don't forgive others, then I'm not saved, there may be something in there with that. But I think this is far more proof that you are saved than an expectation to be saved, if that makes sense. This, this is not a works-based salvation that it, that it says, if you forgive X amount of times, God will then give you into heaven. This is a proof of, if you love Jesus Christ, if you have a relationship with him, you will automatically be drawn to forgive others or have that desire to forgive others. It's a really difficult passage. But I think he's saying the same thing throughout all of the Beatitudes, that this is proof that you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ if you do these things, if you worry about anger, if you worry about these things of gouging out eyes and taking off limbs and those kind of things. And he says, these are proof of that you are saved. Now, that's a, that's a complete tangent from where we need to go, but I think it needed to be explained uh, and there is far more. We could do probably three sermons just on that passage alone and proof of what he's saying there in Matthew chapter 6. For our purposes this morning, I want to use this as a caveat into continuing on the Lord's Prayer and not missing what I feel is very, very important to this text and is important in another portion of Scripture as well. And that is this. I think that this statement is in a very powerful way of saying that God is a relational God and that prayer 
as you see it here, is not just an interaction or a transaction between us and God, but this is meant to be a relational kind of thing. This is not just a me and God kind of prayer time. This is our prayers impact relationally people around us. And I love the fact that God just didn't say, hey, let's just worry about your sins. Let's just worry about a conversation with me and you, everybody else. Don't worry about them. It's just you and Jesus. And as long as you and Jesus are good, then the rest of the world, we don't need to worry about them. He ends very differently. He says, no, no, no. This is about our relationship, our vertical, our our horizontal relationship with God. But he says, this is also about a vertical relationship with the church and with those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, if you think that you can come to me and say, well, we've, I've confessed my sins to God. We're good. He says, no, 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 no. You need to deal with the person, the relationship as well. This is about a relationship here on earth as much as it is here. And I've been in so much accountability in so many conversations where they're like, well, God knows I've sinned. God knows that I've offended so-and-so. And And, and the question gets asked, well, does so-and-so know that that you've asked forgiveness? Have you asked them for forgiveness? Well, I don't need to worry about them because God and I are good. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that unless you are good here and good here, then there is a stoppage in relationship. And this is true not only here in Matthew, but we're going to see this morning that this is true in Paul's life, and this is true in a church setting. See, here's the thing I know about this passage. Here's the things I know about us today in 2019, that God has us right where he wants us, and God has designed the church to be the church, relationships to one another. And when the relationships in the church are good, it's proof that our relationship with God is good. Does that make sense? And so we're going to see what happens then in a church that the relationships aren't good, and it's proof that the relationship with God is not good. So this morning, if you get nothing else out of where we're going this morning, I pray that you see, and this is kind of a weird way of saying it, but I pray that you would see that we have to people our way through prayer. I know that sounds really weird, but we have to use, we have to see people in our prayers and not just read all the prayers we've been through in the last couple weeks together and leave people out of the mix. This morning, we're going to spend a majority of our time in 2 Corinthians. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. 2 Corinthians, there will be some on the screen, um, but 2 Corinthians, we're going to be primarily in chapter 7. So if you stay there, you're going to be pretty well grounded in where we'll be for most of the morning. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7 uh, is where we'll be for most of today. A story about the context of where we find ourselves is helpful. It's always important to understand how we got where we are. So just let me give you a quick synopsis of the church in Corinth. Corinthians was written to a church in Corinth. It was an actual city. And in this city of Corinth was this church that was planted by Paul. This church was probably one of the most messed up churches that we could ever read about in Scripture. Messed up families, messed up theology, messed up accusations against their pastor and their lead pastor and their actually planting pastor. They had messed up ways of handling conflict. And at some point, I I would really love to actually do a whole series through 1 and 2 Corinthians just because there's so much in here that's just like, how did this church even make it? But they did. It's a story about Paul that he planted this church in Corinth. This church goes crazy because they start to believe the lies of their culture and they start to interweave them into their their church. And this church ended up being one of the worst that we've seen uh, in the New Testament, actually, of what they end up doing. This, where we pick up, is a story that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. We'll be jumping around this morning, but primarily it's about Paul coming back to this church and having a conversation with them. 
Some of the key players in this story will be Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Titus. There are four of them. Uh, and these guys were kind of the, the team that was uh, moving around to these churches in Acts. If you want to read their full story, you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. But here's kind of what happened that kind of started some of the drama in the church. So um, there's a little bit of a map, and so you'll kind of have to walk this with me. But Paul who's this guy, uh, started over here, and his dream was, I want to take the gospel up to here in Bithynia. Bithynia." But before he gets there, he was, I'm going to go over to Mysia, and I'm going to spend some time there. And then basically he prays, and he says, God, I want to go to Macedonia, and I want to take the gospel there. And he says, I want to go here. God responds and says, no, we're not going to go there right now. And so he says, I'm going to send you this way. And he goes, I'm going to send you actually over this way, but ultimately, I want to travel through here. So he's like, I want to go here. He says, not yet. I want you to go over to Macedonia. I want to take the gospel here. And you've got this really weird confusion with Paul because he wants to go here, right? You can stay right there. He want, this gets confusing. He wants to go here. He says, God says to go here. Paul stays here, but ultimately, Paul's desire is to go to Corinth, which is here, <laughs> Okay? And you're kind of like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I know. But he's trying to get to here. The people want Paul to come to Corinth. And so his thought is, I'm going to go through Corinth, stop off there, because God didn't really give me a timeline to get to Macedonia. So I'll hang out in Corinth. I'll go up to Macedonia. I'll spend some time in Macedonia. I'll come back down to Corinth, and then I'm going to work my way back home. Next slide. What ultimately happens, though, is that he ends up actually going around Corinth and never really getting to Corinth until much later. And this is what caused the drama in the church in Corinth. They felt shafted by Paul and said, why did you spend all your time going around all these places up to Macedonia and you left us feeling really sad and angry down here and we don't like you, Paul, because you didn't come to us fast enough and we got all these issues in our church and you're off in Macedonia doing whatever you do and we didn't get your time. This is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But I called a God witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to you in Corinth. Now, that's a fun passage because Paul says it was to spare you. Now, when he says to spare you, that was because he was going to come and he was going to come in hot. Okay? He was not going to come into this church and be like, we're good, just as long as you guys are fine. He was going to come in and almost like light the place on fire. He's like, I'm coming in and you guys are not going to like my personal visit to you because you're that messed up of a church. I planted you and you jacked everything up. So he says, that's not going to happen. So he refrained from coming to Corinth and it was for their benefit. And then he says in verses three to four, and I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I, shall, for I felt sure of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I, for I wrote to you, you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. He was coming in hot, but he was coming in hot because he loved them so much that he was going to get in their face. And he was going to get in their face because he knew what they were doing to each other. And he says, you can't keep doing that. and existed a church. I love you too much to leave you alone. And so I'm going to come in. I'm going to talk to you about what you need to do. Paul wrote in his first letter to Corinthians about the sins that were this, that severe in the church, sins that would make our sins look pretty small, sins that would need Christ's words of forgiveness in relationship in Matthew chapter 6. They were not just sins against each other, they were also accusations against Paul himself, and they chose in his absence of Paul's absence to believe the worst about their plaster, pastor and planter rather than the best. 
And in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, you'll find a list of 27 things that Paul addresses in regard to these accusations. So this church had a nice full list of everything that they had against their senior pastor and lead planter. And he has this listed into three lists of nine things each. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's like 27 things. You're like, hey, Paul, here's our things We're, we got against you. And, and, and in all of them, Paul responds to each of them. We're not going to have time to dive into those, but if you want a full list, you can see it in chapter 6. All these 27 things, troubles they experienced, rumors that Paul, was immor- that, that Paul was sleeping around. There was, there was rumors of Paul's immorality. There was slander. There was calling Paul an imposter. He's a fake church planner. <laughs> can you imagine that? You plan this church, your life's going good. All of a sudden you hear back, hey, they're, they're saying you're a fake and they don't want anything to do with you. What? How long have I been gone? What just happened? They were an imposter. They questioned their care for them and many other things they had against Paul and they accused him of these things. We'll come back to that list maybe later. But Paul tells them that as they have to deal with these things, he is coming and he's going to have to deal with these. And these Christians in this church in Corinth were basically eating their own. They were just going after each other and they're starting to devour each other. And when that wasn't enough, then they started to devour their senior pastor. And if there's any kind of need for forgiveness in relationships, it's this church in Corinth. If anybody needed to hear Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, it's these people in Corinth that needed to hear about a relationship to our prayers and not just prayers themselves. 2 Corinthians, before we get into 7, chapter 2, verses 5 through 10, talks about what Paul went through here at the beginning of his journeys and where he went. But he says in verses 5 to 10, uh, he says this, now if, I, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, but to all of you. Paul is speaking Jesus' words here about this issue in Corinth. You see, they did not just cause pain to the senior pastor, they caused pain to everyone around them. For, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. This is the person that was sinning. You should rather turn and comfort him, and he may be overwhelmed by, lest he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for the sake and the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul addresses before he gets into seven the danger of what happens if this is left unchecked. If this is left with just relational chaos, the danger is seven through eight that you should rather turn and forgive. So one of the dangers is that this person would be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow and leave the faith, maybe leave the church. They said that can't happen, so we need to work on forgiveness. And then he says in verse 11, the other danger is not just that this person would be overwhelmed, was the other danger was that they would be outwitted by Satan himself. Satan is, is, is behind a lot of this discourse that is happening in this church. And here's the great news. As they heard this news from Paul, we've got these issues in our church. We're eating our own. This guy may be one of the key culprits. He's going to get overwhelmed. We may be outwitted by Satan. And unless we turn, God, he gives them a chance after chance. And as they do it, here's the good news. They do. They turn. They forgive him. They turn from their sins. And I love that there are so many here, probably in this room, that have the same story, that you wanted to continue in sin. You wanted, because you think you were right, to continue to have a break in a relationship. But you said, you know what? For the sake of Jesus, I'm going to try and make this relationship work. For the sake of Jesus, I'm going to try and be a good friend to them because that's what God has called us to do. And they started to turn. They started to face their sins. They called it out and they turned back to God. But turning is part of the story. The best part of this is the relational piece 
of the turning. Because it wasn't just, again, it wasn't just a prayer between them and God that fixed the issue. It was a prayer between them, God, and the other person. This morning, here's what I know about every sin that we carry around with us in a weekly, monthly, yearly, years of our life basis. Here's what I know. Every single sin, every one, every sin, every single one, from the smallest to the biggest, sins in our life have some degree of relational collateral. I'm telling you, every single sin that we have in our life has some degree of relational chaos and collateral. You've seen it before. You have a sin in your life and, and you don't really want to deal with it and it's directed towards somebody and oftentimes it's somebody in the church. Sometimes it's people close to you. Maybe it's even in your small group and you don't have anything really good to say about that person. And so you're like, you know what? I'm just going to pray about it and turn it to God and I'm going to leave it alone. Nothing really happened in here. But I'm telling you, the longer you let that sit and the longer you let that just between you and God and not the other person, there is relational collateral. And here's what I know about this because I've seen it in church too often. I've seen it in youth ministry too often. The longer you hold on to that grudge and the longer you refuse to deal with it, the, the longer and more distant that relationship becomes. Until you wake up one day and you think about that relationship and you're like, how did I get here? Weren't we close friends? Didn't that just, what What happened? The problem was you, you, you let that sin get distance and distance and distance and distance. And what happens when you get distance in sin is that the sin gets greater and not smaller. And then eventually you wake up, like I said one day, and you wonder, how did I lose that relationship? It's because every sin, every one of them is never done in isolation. Every single sin has relational collateral. Paul explains what Matthew chapter 6 is trying to explain to us. That we forgive those who we have trespassed against us so that our Father then forgives our trespasses as well. That's where he's heading. So let's go to chapter 7. Let's read a couple things in here and um, continue on. So this is now, Paul is dealing with this. He is now coming back to have a conversation with the church in Corinth. And I love what he says here uh, in chapter 7. Let's begin in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. That's awesome. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. So Paul's already going against some of these accusations that the church had against him. He says, we haven't done anything against you, and yet there's these lies going in around us that is 27 points long. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Let's just not glance over that. How cool is that of Paul, who's got 27 action items against him, calling him an imposter, telling him he's immoral. The church is probably very, very heated at this point. They don't want to hear from him. And his first words to them are this, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts. I am in this with you to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness. I have great pride in you. I know you're going to get this. I know you're going to come through in this. I am filled with comfort in all affliction. I am overflowing with joy as they seethe in anger towards him. I am overflowing with joy because I know you're going to get this right. I know you're going to come through in the end. Verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by, by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. 
you want to look at that idea of forgiveness being relational to God, relational to other people, this is it. He came and he was a comfort to them because the church was a comfort to Titus. And here's why Titus was a comfort to Paul and why the church was a comfort to Titus. The reason is this, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that this letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. The first letter in Corinthians, and there's other letters that we don't have in our Bible that are directly written to Corinth that aren't here, but the letters that he wrote to Corinth were were pretty harsh. And he says, I'm sorry that I had to come at you strong. (laughs) I'm sorry that I had to be that blunt with you. But I love it that I had to be that blunt with you because it caused you to turn and see the errors of your ways. And it says then, because of this, it produced in you a godly grief. Verse 10 says this, godly grief produces, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without, this is a key word, highlight, circle that word, without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He says, this relational peace of, of, of prayer and of church comes through godly repentance and godly grief. Godly grief leads to repentance. Worldly grief just leads you back into isolation. Godly grief is sadness like a funeral at the relational loss that you have done because of your sin. I don't know if you've been there before, but there's just this sorrow because you've hurt somebody so badly. I've done this too many times to too many people. My foot gets in my mouth all the time, and I say something, and and it's meant to be kind of funny, but it ultimately comes off cutting, and then I walk away from that conversation going, why did you say that? Because their face just said that wasn't funny, that was cutting. And and there's a relational capital, and there's a sadness in me. It's not an anger of, why were they getting so mad? It's their fault. That was funny. You know what I mean? Like, it's not an arrogance kind of walk away. Like, that's their problem. If they didn't think it was funny, it's because they don't get sarcasm. and That's their problem, right? Worldly grief says it's anger. Godly grief says there's sorrow. There's there's an earnestness of, like, I didn't mean to do that. I need to turn and ask for forgiveness. Godly grief produces an, an earnestness. A worldly grief produces laziness. So in that conversation, there's something in me that I automatically have to go back and have a conversation with that person. God wrestles in my heart until I'm like, I gotta, I gotta get that right. I gotta say something. I didn't mean it to sound like the way it sounded. I just gotta go back and say something to them. There's an earnestness, there's a desire to go back and fix it. Whereas in a worldly grief, it produces more of a laziness. I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to hope the sin just goes away. It's their problem, their issue. I've tried. I'm not going to worry about it. Godly grief, there's an, an, indig- it, there's an anger at the sin itself. I, I look at it and I say, it, it was me saying it, but it was really just the, the sin itself, the, the hurt that was, that was there. Whereas worldly grief is about probably anger more at them. It's their fault. They didn't get the joke. <laughs> so that's on them. Sorry, right? Or it's produced at God. Well, if God was, you know, he'll handle it. Or oftentimes the anger can just even turn inwards to ourselves. I'm such an idiot. I do that all the time. Why do I do that to people? Why am I that person? Why am I always the issue? Those aren't godly grief. Godly grief says get anger at the sin, not at ourselves. Romans chapter 7, there's a whole chapter on it. 
Godly grief says there's fear of God. Worldly grief says there's fear of getting caught. Worldly grief is, I'm not going to enter in because I may say something worse. Godly grief says, I fear God more than I fear how that conversation is going to go with the person that I've hurt. Does that make sense? I fear what God's going to do with me in a breaking relationship more than I fear what that person's going to say if I come clean with what's going on. In godly grief, there's a longing to fix it. In a worldly grief, there's a running away. In the godly grief, there's a zeal and a passion. In the worldly grief, there's a numbness. I don't know if you've been there, but I've been there. In the godly grief, there's, there's punishment, and it's dealt with from a loving father. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord's discipline is the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Don't run from God's discipline. It means he loves you. It means you're in Christ if he's disciplining you. Godly grief, there's punishment for that sin. Worldly grief, there's no consequences whatsoever. I can run away, I can hide, I don't have to deal with it. And once this forgiveness happens in relationship, then it truly is covered, and it happens, and it's done. And Paul is saying here to this church in Corinth, this long list of 27 things you got against me, I'm not worried about that. I just want to get things right between us. I want to bring the relationship back. I can pray to the Father to forgive, but ultimately, it's about you forgiving me, and I forgiving you. Verse 10, for godly grief, again, produces repentance that leads to salvation without, keyword regret, whereas worldly grief only produces death. For we see what earnestness the godly grief has produced in you, but also what, er- what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, all those things I just mentioned on worldly grief versus godly grief. Paul says here, I got them sp- strictly from the passage where he says all these things are produced by godly grief. At every point, this is awesome, at every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your eagerness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. All of this repentance, all of this godly grief, all of this working of Matthew chapter 6 of forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, all of that is happening in relationship. And when we get it right, when the church gets it right, here's what happens. Verse 13, therefore we are comforted. Isn't that awesome? When we get it right, we are comforted. We are at ease with one another. We're back to ground zero level. We're, we're good. We're, we're, we're clear. We're in, we're in good relationship with one another. Verse 13 continues, And besides our own comfort, this is even better, the better news is this, We rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. This is crazy. Because of their repentance... Follow, follow, follow this with me. Because of their repentance, Titus was the first to hear of their repentance and their joy in Jesus and wanted to get the 27 list thing gone and wanted to make the relationship right. Titus is the first to hear that. And he's like, that is awesome. Only God could do that to this messed up church in Corinth. And then he goes and shares the news with Paul and all the other uh, apostles of over here disciples. And he says, you got to hear this. This is amazing. You got to hear this. And as he shares it with them, and as he heard it from the first church, what happens is verse 13. We rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. 
Because of your repentance, Titus is on cloud nine. We're up here because we're super excited because when you hear stories of what God does, it just jacks you up. You're like, yes, yes, let's keep going forward. Let's keep taking darkness out. Let's keep going and advancing the gospel because it's working. We rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because the Spirit had been refreshed by you all. Verse 14, for whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. In other words, when I told Titus they're going to get it, they're going to come through, that's an amazing, like just, okay, I know, I'm all rabbit trailer, but just, just imagine. You're seeing your pastor who's just had all these accusations against them. He's got 27 lists. They're like, this guy's an imposter. He's a fraud. We don't want anything to do with our lead planner pastor. The guy's a jerk. He wants nothing to do with us. What is Paul's reaction? Titus, I want you to go. You're going to hear a lot of stuff. <laughs> you're going to hear a lot of stuff about me. You're going to hear a lot of lies. You're going to hear a lot of anger. There's going to be a lot of bitterness. There's going to be a lot of things messed up in this church. But I want you to go, and here's what I want you to know, Titus. When you go, here's what you need to know. They're going to get it. They're going to connect the dots. I promise you it's going to happen. They're just working through some stuff. This is going to work. Can you imagine Titus arriving to the church, seeing all that's happening in the church? People are, it's a whole thing. I can't even share and mix company with what's happening in the church, but it was messed up. And imagine Titus walking into the church going, this is going to turn around? This is going to work? There are like siblings and dads and kids suing each other. How is this going to work? Like in church, like drawing up documents in the pews. <laughs> like, I hate you enough, I'm going to take you to court. Sign here. Let's worship. Praise God. Right? That's what was happening in the church. And Titus is like, this is it? And Paul's like, trust me. Trust me. They're going to get it. It's going to turn. It's going to turn. This is awesome. For whatever boast I made to him about you, he was bragging about them before he even sent Titus. This church is awesome. This church is going to get it. They're going to turn to repentance. Titus gets there. He's like, this church? This church, it's going to be awesome. I was not put to shame. It's true. You turned. You got it right. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of how you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Oh, that's awesome. Titus came in and they knew their junk was on the table and Titus was coming in to clear the house and they knew it and they said, help us fix us. This is awesome. And he says in verse 16, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. You got this church. You've got this. You're going to come through. Paul lived out relational trespasses, forgiving them. Even before Titus got there, he was forgiving them. He was trying to fight for relationship. He was trying to fight past all the lies. He says they're going to get it. They're going to get it. So much so that verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 11 to 13, this is awesome. He says this, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, highlight circle the word Corinthians in your Bibles. It's the only place in First and Second Corinthians that he uses the title Corinthians. It's the only term he uses when he's speaking passionately and intimately with his church. He uses it in Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, you Corinthians. That's a personal preference name that he gives them. How freely he's spoken to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open, is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. Paul says, you saw me do it, 
believing the best in you, widening my heart to you, coming to you with confidence. I believe in you. You're going to get it. And so as I have done that, he says, in return, widen your hearts also. Expand them. When we don't forgive others, our hearts shrink and we don't widen it to anybody. We only get narrow, narrow vision. Well, if they would just come and fix the problem with me, then life would be fine. And as soon as they do X, Y, and Z, then we can get this relationship back on track. But until then, this is over. We're done. I'm done with this friendship. I don't want anything to do with them. It constricts us. We're God and Christ and Paul and Corinth is saying, no, 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 Corinthians, communityans, <laughs> widen your hearts, expand your hearts, make them wide open as I have to this church in Corinth, he says. We have spoken freely. Remember the list of the 27 things. Paul calls them by name and by affection. And he says, you can do this. And he ends with this transparency and this authenticity. And this transparency and authenticity that loving this church leads to two things that we see in chapter 7. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. I do not say this to condemn you. Verse 4. I am filled with comfort in all, affliction, in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. He says, if we forgive, if we get this right, if we keep our prayers and our forgiveness of sins in relationship to one another and to God, we get this right. And so here's how we close this morning. That's a lot of information to take in. It's a lot of kind of, okay, that's a lot of background. So, so how does that apply to me today? What, what does that mean for us today? I think it's pretty obvious I think it's that if we can only think on the me and God level, well, God and I are good, then I don't need anybody else. We're missing the entire point of Jesus and his prayer. He says, it's not just about you and God. It's about you, God, and others. It's about you, God, and the church. He says, I want you to remain open, your hearts, to work through these differences. And it's an encouragement to us at Community Bible Church, I believe, as we head even into summer and beyond. It's an encouragement to say, community, keep going. Don't lose your ability to be in relationships. Our church, if you haven't recognized it yet or not, our church is big in relationships. A lot of people who come in these doors, like if you're trying to hide, it just doesn't happen. If you're trying to get in and get out, it typically doesn't happen because you're stopped by probably three or four people who are like, tell me your story. We like you. How are you? And you're like, oh, I just need to get out. Just let me get out. You know, and, but we don't let you do that because we're just kind of attacking you at the door and, you know, we know your name and all that. It's just great. The relational side of this is what we can't lose. The relational side of this gets damaged when sin comes into the picture and we only think vertical and we don't think horizontal. Does that make sense? It only loses its effectiveness when we forget that we are God's people around us. Do you realize that the people sitting around you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, for crying out loud? That the people you're sitting next to is Jesus in them. They're not like kind of like delegates of Jesus. Jesus didn't kind of look at them and say, okay, go represent me in Tesla. He says, I will live in you and through you. So as you look to the person to your right and left, you realize that Christ is living in them. That's different than a delegate. That's different than somebody who's just trying to do their best life possible here on earth and get out. That's something that God says, I am in you. So community Bible church, don't lose our ability to be in relationships with one another. Community Bible church, keep struggling and sharing your struggles with those in relationships here. There is no better place to struggle than in the church. 
And I'm a, I am sorry for those who maybe grew up in a church where it was not okay to struggle, where it was not okay to be messed up. I, I, I hope that you understand that, yes, we are, and yes, we will fail, and yes, we will struggle, but we can't stay there. We have to work towards relationships. So Community Bible Church, keep going. Keep sharing struggles with those in your community groups. Keep sharing struggles with those around you. Community Bible Church, keep going. Keep being encouraged by being transparent because we all know being transparent costs us something, right? Pride, status, Keep being transparent. Keep opening up your life. Keep widening your heart. Community Bible Church, keep going. Keep trusting Jesus to forgive you and walk with others through your junk. Community Bible Church, keep growing and keep killing the sin in you. We talked about it last week. Identify it and attack it. But don't just attack it. Attack it Galatians 6 style and take brothers along with you to restore everybody gently until there is full repentance and reconciliation. God has not left you alone. In Community Bible Church, you have something that is special. You really do. Your relational capacity is amazing. I want to encourage you, keep going and don't lose it. Keep telling your story to your neighbors and those around you that, yeah, we are not perfect by any means. But man, do we love each other. Man, do we care for one another. Man, is there an openness and correction and working together. We try our best to do those kind of things. That's my hope for us this morning. I pray that as you work through these prayers, and I get that this morning is not a prayer, I'm hoping that this morning is more of an encouragement, that maybe you're kind of on that fence of, do I, do I, do I try and restore something? Do I not? I've tried before. It hasn't worked. I pray this morning this, this is an opportunity for you to say, yeah, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again, even if the door gets closed to my face. I'm going to deal with it because it's not just me and God dealing with my sin. It's me and others around me dealing with my sin. And so relationally, we've got to do this so that our church is healthy moving forward together. That's my prayer. Let me pray. God, this morning, um, we realize that there are a lot of things that uh, we carry with us on a regular basis. I get it. I'm with them. We carry a lot of sin that uh, we can keep hidden from other people, things we don't like to talk about, things that if they were out there, we worry about what people would say, things that uh, are just easier if we keep them between me and you. I don't need to tell anybody else. My wife doesn't need to know. My husband doesn't need to know. My friends don't need to know. My family doesn't need to know. It's just us. It's just our thing. God, I pray that you'd open up our hearts wide, that we'd be a church who is willing to fight darkness and take sin on head on, and do it in a way that's caring and relational. And God, here's what I know. I know that that's scary. I know that that's uh, intimidating. It's easier to live in silence. It's easier to live in isolation than it is to live in community and in relationship with others. But here's also what I know. You're a God who developed us, made us. You have made people plan A for growing in you. And so I pray that as a church, we continue to do what we have been doing, trusting others in relationships, knowing that you are bigger than anything that we carry, knowing that you are bigger than any sin we commit, knowing that you are bigger than any fear we have. I pray, God, that as we close, we'd remind ourselves with that. And God, if there's others that we just need to have a conversation with today, tomorrow, this week, we'd schedule it, we'd put it on, the, we'd put it on there, and we'd say, I just need to have a, I need to have a talk. 
I just need to put it out there one more time. And I want to thank you for this church. I want to thank you for how they've grown. I want to thank you for how dedicated they are to you and how dedicated they are to one another. That's a rarity. And I'm just so thankful to be here. Best way to start into Easter was with them. And so we pray you continue to use us in powerful ways in each other's lives and in this community. It's in your name we pray. Amen.